Well, I don't know exactly the date that the original song came out, but I do know that it was originally written or performed rather by Marvin Gaye, and that is the song, Can I Get a Witness? It was covered by the Rolling Stones in 1964, uh, about 20 years before I came into existence. Um, But at the end of that song, there's that refrain where he says over and over and over again, I want a witness, right? I want a witness, I want a witness, I want a, a witness. Now, Marvin Gaye was talking about something way different than Jesus is talking about in John's gospel in John chapter 5. But in a lot of ways, Jesus is answering that call, I want a witness. Not for Marvin, not for the Rolling Stones, but for the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have lined up toe-to-toe to oppose Jesus. See, Jesus understood that the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19 said that if any charge was going to be taken seriously or if any, any claim was going to be considered weighty, that it, it needed more than just one voice. And to this point in time, it's been just simply Jesus' voice in the first part of John chapter 5 saying, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the Son of God. Well, now Jesus is going to turn to support that with these witnesses. And you may be thinking, okay, well, Pastor PJ, we understand this, though. Do we need a witness? Do we really need this? Do, do, we, do we need this, uh, this message all on the, the witnesses pointing to the validity of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God? I mean, after all, we understand that. Well, we do understand that. But it's always helpful for us to be encouraged and for our faith to be bolstered, for us to be reminded, not just because a pastor told you, but because you see it from the very words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that He is saying, look, this is who I am. This is who the prophets have said I am. And look at what I'm doing. This is who God is bearing witness to you that I am as well. And so we're going to be in John chapter 5. But just as a a refresher for us, a reminder of why John is writing this, because it has a lot to do with this passage that we're looking at today. John says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is the, the inspired editor, right? Inspired in the sense that what he's including are the breathed out words of God. Uh, so he is the, the, the editor as he's looking at the, the breadth of Jesus' ministry. And he's chosen under God's leadership in in ordination here, he's chosen to include in John's gospel, in these 21 chapters, the things that he finds are going to be most helpful for you and I to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have eternal life. That includes what we're reading about in John chapter 5 here together this morning. John included these words of Jesus Because, I mean, think about it, man. Three years of earthly ministry with Jesus. How much of Jesus' teaching do we not have recorded? Probably quite a bit. I mean, we're not missing anything because Peter tells us we have everything necessary for life and godliness. But there's got to be so many conversations that took place offline that weren't recorded. And yet these are the ones that made their way into the Bible because under God's direction. These are the ones that John chose so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's really what he's defending in John chapter 5 in our passage that we're looking at together this morning. So as we pick up in John chapter 5 verses 30 through 32, Jesus continues his engagement with the, the, the Jews, the religious leaders. He says, I can do nothing on my own. 
We've heard that refrain, right, back in John chapter 5, verse 19, when Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own accord. And again, that's not an admission of inferiority to the Father, but that's just an admission of his submission to the Father. And it's also him saying, look, I'm not going to do anything rogue. But the the Father and I work in perfect unison, in perfect harmony with one another. And so he returns to that theme in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is acknowledging this reality. He's acknowledging their awareness of the Old Testament law. That in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says that a charge had to be established based on the testimony of not one witness, but two or three witnesses. And so if we look at this not as a negative charge, but a positive charge, that Jesus is charging himself with being the Son of God, he's acknowledging here to the Jewish leaders, to these experts in the law, look, I I know that you're not going to believe just because I've testified to these things. My witness by itself, according to your point of view, is not going to be sufficient But then Jesus says this in verse 32, but there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus is saying, look, my witness doesn't stand by itself. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through two, the writer says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. By Jesus. And so as Jesus is bearing witness in what we've read already in John chapter 5, when he says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father, for the son is worthy of the same honor as the father. He's not a singular voice that's bearing witness about himself by himself. But it's the father speaking even through the son, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, and that's what Jesus is appealing to here in verse 32. He's saying, look, I know at face value, you're going to look at me going, you're one voice from this carpenter from Nazareth. Who are you to stand up and claim to be the son of God? Who else is going to accompany your testimony to validate these things? And one of the first things that Jesus is trying to to get them and, and help us understand is my verbal testimony really is not alone because the words that I speak are the words of the, the father because the father and I are one. John chapter 5, verse 19, I do nothing of my own accord. John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. That includes the words that he speaks. Jesus never spoke a rogue word that the Father was up in heaven going, wait a minute, what did he just say? But every single word that Jesus spoke was divine. Every single word that Jesus spoke was in perfect harmony, in unison with the will and mind of the Father. So that as Jesus spoke, he was speaking the words of God, because why? Because he's the son of God, he is God. And that's what he's driving at here with this first witness. This first witness this morning, men, is the, the witness of Jesus himself. Hear his own testimony. Hear Jesus' own testimony. There are many beliefs that are out there today about who Jesus was. Well, he was just, he was a good prophet, if you, if you engage with somebody of, of Islamic faith, they're going to argue that. They're going to say, well, we've got a great respect for Jesus. In fact, he was an honored prophet, and, and the Quran talks about him as an honored and well-respected prophet. You Christians have just perverted things. Or you're going to talk to somebody from one of our cults that's going to say, well, uh, Jesus was, was significant, 
and Jesus had a high rank, but you know, Jesus was created. Jesus wasn't, Jesus and the father, they're not equal to one another. Or you're going to have other people say, well, yeah, Jesus was a historical figure, but he was really just a, a cult leader who faded out of, uh, out of the scene and his followers just decided that they were going to create this and concoct this story. And, and that's where kind of Christianity came out of is, is their desire to, uh, to promulgate his, his legacy. Well, men, we need to look at the words of Jesus to find out who Jesus thought he was. And Jesus is saying, look, you want to know who I am. I am the son of God. And my testimony does not stand alone because I speak what the father wants me to speak. I do nothing of my own accord. This problem of a disbelief in Jesus is not a problem that that was left in the the first century, right? It's a problem that's continued today. I just referenced a a few examples of that. But sometimes it seems to us where, okay, we're reading the words of Jesus. How can you not believe? And that's where it gets into this problem that, that we need to understand that the problem is not a matter of knowledge, but the problem is a matter of the will. It's not a matter of giving people more knowledge in order to make a decision. Now, it, it is to a certain extent, right? When we talk about lifestyle evangelism, well, I just try to be a nice person and, and hope that I'm being a good witness for Jesus. Look, nobody ever got saved because you opened a door for them. The only way somebody's going to get saved is when you open your mouth and share the gospel with them. So there's a, a measure of knowledge that we need to provide to people about who Jesus is. But at some point, it stops becoming about knowledge, and it really is about will. Because the problem of mankind is not an intellect problem. It's a 2 Corinthians 4 problem. And Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says that their case, in their case, the case of unbelievers... Those that look at Jesus skeptically or with, with side eyes or deny who he was. In, in their case, the God of this world, who is, who again? Satan. He has blinded the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They have a will that is incapable of putting their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior because their problem is not a matter of needing to be convinced. It's a problem of needing to be born again. It's a problem of needing to have the veil removed, the veil lifted. So even here as Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees in referencing these Old Testament prophecies like Daniel 7 when he's saying that I am the the son of man, the son of God, and and their minds are filling with the images here. Jesus, it's not a matter of the intellect for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a matter of the Father going to work on their hearts and through the Spirit to to remove the veil so that they will understand and truly see who Jesus is. And the same holds true today, amen. So as you have conversations at Thanksgiving, you have conversations at Christmas about Jesus with your unbelieving family members, and maybe it's the, the upteenth time that you've talked to them, and you sit there and you go, how can you not see it? You've been in the church. How can you not understand this? Look at the world that we live in. How can you chase after the same things over and over and over again, looking for satisfaction there when they continually disappoint you? What's the disconnect? Well, men, the disconnect is their eyes are are blind and they need a work of God to remove the veil. All that to say, Jesus was clear about who he was. And you've got a group of, of men here looking at Jesus who was of the tribe of Judah a descendant of David, born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, right? Can we just begin to check off the messianic prophecies that this man has already fulfilled and yet these leaders are looking at him and refusing to believe? So Jesus says, look, 
You want to know who I am? Who I am is I am the son of God. John 6, says, look, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him. Again, it's not a problem of the, the intellect. It's a problem of the will. And the only thing that can change the will is the spirit of God. But, but like Jesus has already admitted, look, you're not going to take my word by itself. So Jesus says, fine, you don't want to listen to me. Well, well, maybe I can get you to listen to the prophets. Look at verse 33. You sent to John. Which John is this? John the Baptist. You sent to John, and and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I, I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. If we go back to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, we find this testimony of John the Baptist. In fact, John writes it this way, the the author. He says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Jesus said in our text, you sent to John. This is what he's alluding to, John chapter 1. John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said to him, okay, then what? What are you doing? Are are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's reaching back to Old Testament prophecy, trying to get the people there to understand, hey, look, this is being fulfilled in your presence right now. There's one among you right now, as he goes on to say in this passage, who you do not know. Look, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one among you. I'm not even going to untie his sandals because I'm not worthy to even do that. So Jesus is saying, you're not going to listen to my testimony? How about John's testimony? He bore witness to the truth. In fact, he has borne witness to the truth. It's in the perfect tense, which only means this. It's a past event with ongoing implications for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, John's testimony is still ringing in your ears. And you're ignoring it. And he provides that caveat in there. He says, look, I'm not doubting myself. He says, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I, the testimony that I receive or that I need is from men. Jesus is saying, you're not rocking my boat here. I'm not going, well, am I really the son of God? Oh, yeah, I am, because John tells me I am. He's saying, I'm appealing to John. I'm going back to John so that, again, so that what? So that you might believe and that you might be saved. What was the testimony of of John? This is the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Twice he said that to his his followers. Hey, I'm the voice of one calling, prepare the way for the Lord. A direct messianic prophecy that anyone within earshot would have heard and understood. In fact, so much so that Jesus even says in our passage that the Jews were, were delighted to be in his light for a while. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that they were, they were expecting great things. That's why they sent the dispatch to John the Baptist. They're hearing, hey, this guy's out here quoting Isaiah, quoting these messianic prophecies. This could be the one. Or at least if he's not the one, he's telling us he's getting ready for the one. And so there's this expectation. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. If we go to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 28, Jesus 
is approached by John's messengers. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out just to stare at the weeds? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Some bureaucrat out there? No. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, they live in luxury and they're in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Or the fervor that's created in Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Matthew 3, 5 through 7 says, Then all Jerusalem and Judea was going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I guess is it, it was at that point when they were kind of beginning to turn on John a little bit. They had this, this fervor, this expectation, this hope-filled excitement, and yet it was misplaced because they were expecting the wrong type of Messiah, and they weren't fully listening. Why does Jesus appeal to John the Baptist? Well, from Luke's testimony, we know that John was a significant person. There's no one born among women who's greater than John. But I think more than that, I think he was alluding to a deeper level here, and that is, what was John doing? John was a prophet saying that the prophecies of the Old Testament are about to be fully realized. John was a prophet saying, this is the one. John was a prophet saying, hey, you know all of that stuff that we've been looking for, we've been expecting, we've been waiting for, it's about to be realized in this one who stands among you, whose shoes I'm not even going to dare to untie. We've heard the, the testimony of Jesus himself. The second level that Jesus appeals to is he says, look, if you're not going to listen to me, perhaps you'll listen to the testimony of the, the prophets. Second point this morning. Hear the testimony of the prophets. If you go to a Jewish synagogue today, and you were to sit down on the Sabbath as they're doing the, the Old Testament reading, which is all they're going to do. They're not going to read from the New Testament in there. Uh, but you're going to be in the book of Isaiah. And they're going to be reading, and they're going to get to Isaiah 52, and they're going to read the first part of Isaiah 52, and then they're going to stop. And you're going to say, great, I'll come back next week, and it's going to be a fantastic opportunity to witness and to evangelize, and we're going to read Isaiah 53, and they're going to hear about the suffering servant, and we'll talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, and I'm going to convert the entire synagogue. Next week, I'll be back. And you show up the next week, and you walk in, you sit down, they say it's time for the reading. You say, here we go, and you start rubbing your hands together, all excited. You're the next Billy Graham. The Billy Graham of all of Israel is about to be bursting onto the scene, right? And they pick up the, the book of Isaiah, and they say, last week we were in Isaiah 52. Open your Torah scrolls to Isaiah what? 54. I, not joking. They will skip Isaiah 53. See, even today, they're still ignoring the voice of the prophets. 
And if you sit down with, with a Jewish rabbi, that Jewish rabbi is going to tell you, well, that's not about Jesus, that's about Israel. And they're going to go through all kinds of hermeneutical Olympics to try to make that work and fit when it just is so plain that this is about Jesus. Why don't they believe? Again, why? Because their problem is a problem of the will, not of the intellect. It's a 2 Corinthians 4.4 problem. But all that to say, it's, it's still happening today. And Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Jump down to verse 39. He says to these Jewish leaders, you search, you unpack, you study, you exegete, you analyze, you dig into the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Again, you search, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Man, they, they were well acquainted with Psalm 19, weren't they? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It was a commonly held maxim amongst the Jewish leaders, and even still today, that there is life to be found in the study of the scriptures. And Jesus is capitalizing on that knowledge, capitalizing on their awareness of the Bible, going, you are literally, these are the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees right here. He's saying, you're experts in this, and yet you've completely missed it. Because you study these scriptures, thinking that you're going to have life in these scriptures, but I want you and I need you to understand that they are the things that they, they testify about me. And you refuse to come to me, even though that is this, the scriptures that are, are bearing witness about me. In fact, look down even further at verse 45 through 47. He says, do not think that I'm going to accuse you to the father. There's one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope, referring by using Moses, referring to the, the Old Testament law, the Torah. He's saying that the thing that you value the most is that which will accuse you before the Father. Moses is going to be the one that accuses you. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses is writing Genesis 3.16. The seed of the woman. You will strike his, his heel, but he will crush your head. As Moses is, is writing Genesis 12.3, the, the Abrahamic blessing there. In you, Abraham, through one of your offspring, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. As, as Moses is writing about the, the prophet like him that God will raise up from among the people. See, Jesus is saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm in the Old Testament. And you've studied it and you've searched it and you've, you know the prophets backwards and forwards. And John was, was yet another example and yet you rejected him. So Jesus is saying, like, you want to witness about who I am? I've borne witness, and, and remember, my witness is the witness of still the Father because he's speaking through me. That wasn't good enough for you. Fine. Here's John and the prophets. You get a two for one with John. You, you missed that as well. Okay, well, well, maybe one more. Verse 36, but. 
okay, you've rejected John. You searched the scriptures and you refused to come to me. But, but listen, I have another testimony. I have another witness. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Okay, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. It's a pretty astounding statement considering what Jesus wrote in Luke 7, 28, yes? I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. And yet, Jesus is saying, I have a greater testimony than John, even. And I think you get again the two for one here. I've got a greater testimony than Moses. I've got a greater testimony than the prophets. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Man, we we take for granted the Trinitarian relationship of, of the Son to the Father because we're used to it. First century Israel, as Jesus is speaking these words, there is no such thing, conceptually speaking, as the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you were literally baptized into the Trinitarian formula. There's no understanding of this here. Man, we need to understand that every time Jesus references the Father as his Father, it is a, a bold-faced statement that he is God, that he and the Father are equal, that he is the Son of God. It's a dagger in the, the, the heart of these Pharisees as they're listening to him every single time. And so we read it, and it's so natural to us to say, okay, uh, the testimony I have that it's greater than John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish— the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I mean, it's, 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 it loses the impact on us that it had on them. Because this is Jesus doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on his statement that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, that he and the Father are equal. Whoever does not honor the, the, the Son does not honor the Father. That was two weeks ago for us, but that's five minutes ago for the people listening to Jesus in this passage. And so he's continuing on this train of thought that, that the Father and he are one. I can do nothing of my own accord. I do nothing on my own. The Father and I were in perfect unison with one another. And so he says, so you want the final testimony? Look at the works that I'm doing because the Father, Yahweh, is testifying to you about who I am if you will watch what I'm doing. And, and some were paying attention. Some understood this. In fact, we know of one back in John chapter 3, verse 2 that we've already studied. It says, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can what? No one can do the things that you're doing unless he's from God. Okay, Nicodemus was beginning to get it. And I think it's a process. And I think by the end, we see Nicodemus is a follower of Jesus. Because he's beginning to understand that, wait a minute, the father's doing something through this guy. Yahweh is doing something through this carpenter from Nazareth who has stepped in and become a rabbi. And these are not normal things that are going on. And so initially that's enough to pique the interest of Nicodemus. But it wasn't just Nicodemus. John chapter 7 verse 31. Many of the people believed him. And they said, when the Christ appears, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
they're understanding it as well, going, wait a minute. He's different. What he's doing, we haven't seen this before. Yahweh is doing something through this rabbi. When the Messiah shows up, will the Messiah do any greater than this man has done? Implying what? Implying, might this be the one? Might this be the Messiah? Or John eleven forty seven. 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? In other words, we can't just launch a smear campaign against him. We can't just write him off as a lunatic because he's doing things that we have to even ourselves step back and go, how do we explain what he's doing? Water to wine, walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, raising the widow's son, casting out demons, healing the blind and the lame and the sick, raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, these are all things that, that Jesus is saying to them right now. And granted, some of those things haven't happened yet, but he's saying, look, the, the things that I'm doing that the Father has given me to accomplish, the things that Yahweh has entrusted to me to accomplish, pay attention to these things because they too bear witness about who I am. Peter picks up on this theme as well in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, witness to you, by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter's apologetic for Jesus is, look back at what he did. Pay attention to the testimony of the Father as he was working through the Son. The very works that the Father has given me to do, these testify, these bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, yes, in the past, the father had validated prophets through miraculous works. Even when we go back to, to Moses going before Pharaoh, right? And Aaron and the rod and the staff and the, the plagues and, and, and things to, to validate that, that it was the, the authority of God behind these two men. Or you think about Elijah and Elisha and the miracles that they performed that God enabled them to perform in order to, again, validate their message. But this is different because none of them ever claimed to be the Son of God. None of them ever claimed that unique relationship with the Father. Jesus has, and the Father continues to work through him to continue to validate his message. Well, what's the, what was the message of those prophets? Well, by and large, it was, hey, repent, because God's not happy with what's going on. And you want to know some authority? Well, I, I raised a widow's son back here. I, I helped a, a widow with her oil supply over here. J what's Jesus' message? Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father. The father and I are one. You want my message validated? Look at what the father is doing through me. Look at the testimony of the works that I do. Final point this morning is this. Hear the testimony of the Father. The testimony of the Father. The testimony of Yahweh. Yeah, it was there in our point number one through the voice of Jesus himself. But now it's there in point number three through the works that Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, you don't want to listen to me? Okay, here's John and the prophets. Oh, you, you don't want to listen to them. I have a greater testimony. How about Yahweh? Will you listen to Yahweh? 
Will you watch what God is doing, what the Father is doing through my ministry and my life? Back in John chapter 5, verses 37 through 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. In his voice, you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. We're not exactly sure of the, the direct reference of verse 37. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. It's possible that he's alluding back to the, the baptismal testimony there when the heavens opened up and the, the spirit descended as a, a dove. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. John doesn't record that event, but it's, it's possible that that's what Jesus was alluding to here. But the point is he's saying, look, the father he has been clear. And then comes the triple indictment. Yet, Jesus says, you don't believe. Because why? Because you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. And you don't have his word dwelling within you. He's providing this threefold indictment against those that are gathered around. Saying, understand the gravity of rejecting these witnesses. You want to reject me? You want to reject John? Then know that you're ultimately rejecting the Father. And there's an implication here, even as Jesus is talking to these religious leaders going, hey, have you, have you pondered why it is maybe that um, you haven't seen God the way that our forefathers saw his form? Which is ironic that that's the indictment of Jesus as the son of God, God in the flesh is standing in front of these people and he's saying, you've never seen him. Hey, you, you ever wonder why you've never heard from God the way that Moses did, Abraham did? It's because you don't actually believe in the one whom you've sent. You don't have the words of God dwelling within you. And the evidence of that is your lack of belief, your lack of faith. Second Peter 1, 16 through 21 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's about to speak of the Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we now have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Back in our passage, you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't have his word abiding. If you did, you would believe the prophecies. You would believe the scriptures. You believe the testimony that I've borne already. And yet you don't, and it's evidence that you are not of the Father. In verse 41, he goes on, he says, look, I, I don't receive glory from people. He said, I'm not the type of Messiah that you want. Jesus is going, I get that. 
I understand that. I'm not here for you to be excited about me. I'm not here for you to, to flatter me. Nor, he says, am I here to flatter you. Because he goes on, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's that you don't love God, not that God doesn't love you. He's saying, I know that you don't love God. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Why? Well, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's saying, there are others that will come and bear witness, and you'll like them. Why? Because they're there to blow smoke. They're there to flatter you. You'll receive glory from them because they're going to come along and say, hey, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. You've been oppressed by Rome, and that's not fair, and that's wrong, and we want to get Rome out of the way. So come join behind us, and let's revolt. Let's get rid of the oppressors and restore Israel to glory, and you need to be back on the world scene, and, and you deserve better than this. And we're going to, it's the empty promises of the campaign trail, right? Jesus was not campaigning to be the Messiah. He was the Messiah. He didn't need their votes. He wanted their faith and their allegiance. And so Jesus is standing toe-to-toe with this group of people that oh, don't like him very much. And this Christmas season, you're going to be in the presence of people that don't like Jesus very much either. And one thing I want us to notice here is that Jesus is not interested in walking away, making sure that everybody's copacetic. Jesus is not interested in walking away, making sure that all of our relationships are intact and we can get together for an awkward, non-political, non-religious meal next year at the same time. Jesus understood what was at stake. I know you don't have the love of the Father in you. Man, I want us to ponder as we think about the next couple weeks, month in front of us, those that will be around who we would look at them and say, we know that you don't have the love of the Father in you. And I want you to play out what that actually means for them. Should think about their faces and their names. And think about their death. And think about the fact that the writer of Hebrews says it exists for a man to die once and then comes judgment. And ask yourself if it will be more worth it in the end for you to perhaps disrupt the apple cart a little bit this Christmas around the table to testify about who this one is that we're reading about in John chapter 5 in the hopes that God might remove that 2 Corinthians 4 veil from maybe one or two of them so that they won't spend eternity suffering under the wrath and judgment of God. I think their soul is more precious or should be more precious to us than making sure that we can all shake hands and smile and hug each other as we walk away from the Christmas table. Because 100 years from now, if those family members die and go to hell, your relationship with them is done for all of eternity. Done. 
If those are your kids, done. And you will never see them again, ever. Never have another opportunity again, ever. To tell them about Christ. To, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, implore them, plead with them, beg with them to be reconciled to the Lord. Jesus, the prophets, and the Father. It's a pretty well-orbed answer to the question, can I get a witness? We have this witness ourselves. Men, are we going to this year join the voices that have come from John chapter 5 onward that are testifying along with Christ, pointing back at him, going, he is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and you need him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Christ and thankful for the testimony that we have in Scripture, the surety that we have that he is the Son of God. We thank you that we don't follow a dead Messiah and just hope that he did enough to, to make it right with you, but we follow a living Messiah, a living God who the writer of Hebrews says is right now at your right hand interceding for us on our behalf. God, all of us in this room have people that we can think of that don't know you because they don't know Christ. All of us in this room are going to have opportunities over the next month to have conversations with those people. And God, we just pray that you would provide those opportunities and even through the, the spirit within us, prompt us to, to open our mouths, to even be willing to say, at, at minimum, I'm, I'm willing to suffer making things awkward. Even at most, I'm willing to, to, to alienate this person because they need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear the testimony of who he is and why it matters and the hope that's contained therein. God, we pray that you would remove veils from the eyes of our loved ones this Christmas season, that lost would be saved, not from us because, Lord, we dare not tamper with the gospel or try to make it more appealing through our cunning or, or expertise. But Lord, that they might be saved because just as your simple servants, we are telling them the good news that you by your spirit might remove the veil from their eyes so that might, they might see, repent, and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We ask for that, God. And we know that you're able to do that. We pray that you would, in Jesus' name, amen.